it's the second week of the new decade, uh, 2020, and it's not been a great year or a great decade so far. So I wanted to talk about something fun. And the most fun thing I can think of to talk about is Christopher Moore's novel, Sacre Bleu, which I just reread. And it is beautiful, funny, poignant, genius in ways I completely missed the first time I read it. And so now I have Mr. Moore here to talk about how he made a book that is genius about artistic genius. How did you do that, sir? Um, well, after attending famous genius school, I was able to take the skills I learned there and parlay they, them into this best-selling novel about the color blue. I, I have no idea how I did it. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 14th year and third decade, number 683, Personifying the Muse. Christopher Moore's best-selling novel, Sacre Bleu, is subtitled A Comedy d'Art which it certainly is, but it's also a comedy about making d'art. The intensity, the passion, the magical, possibly supernatural aspect of creation, and the sacrifices and price artists pay when they follow their muse. Originally published in 2012, I recently read Sacre Bleu again and marveled, as I usually do, how seemingly effortlessly Chris creates a story that is so wonderfully entertaining, and I mean that literally, entertaining and full of wonder, So I was hugely grateful that, once again, he was able to carve out some time and talk to me about how he created this book about creation. When I look back at the book and and how monumental the task was going into it, I can't believe I attempted it. And and it it must have been such a, a faith that I'd be able to pull it off that allowed me to go forward. Plus, the subject matter was really, really, really fun to research. So, uh, which, which provided a lot of it, but I, I, I don't know. I still look at it and go, how, how did you do this? Well, yeah. that, that was my question was, what was the impulse to start it? Because it sounds like from what you say that you started in ignorance thinking, oh, this will be fun. And then you got into it and you went, what the hell am I doing? You know, I, one of those kind of questions that you always get um, from people who just meet you for the first time and find out what you do is where do you get your ideas from? And I have no idea. I had a notion, really a notion. The sentence, the, the sentence, what would it be like to write a book about the color blue? What I was thinking about 10 seconds before that, I, I don't know, but that's how this whole book started, was what would it be like to, to try and write a book about the color blue? And not just any blue, the sacred blue from the Impressionist period? Well, that's, that's where it ended up. I, I think that you know one, sometimes you have these notions and you carry them forward, and then the universe just starts supplying connections for you. And, and not long after I had the notion that um, uh, what would it be like to write about the color blue, I probably Googled the color blue and came up with, you know, ultramarine, ultramarine blue, which is made from lapis lazuli and which, um, 
I ended up calling sacre bleu, but that's not really how the French use that term. Mm. But but it was, you know, once I started learning a, a little bit about the history of the color um, on, on what I would call just a real sh- uh, shotgun sort of research, the stuff that you do, whether you're finding out if it's you're trying to find out if it's even feasible to do uh, a book about something like this. And, and somehow I stumbled across the circumstances of Vincent van Gogh's death. And I had read, you know, a few articles and, and chapters in, in books about van Gogh's life, but the, the actual circumstance of, of his, you know, there was always sort of this understanding that he went into this field and, in, um, Auvers and shot himself. And by the way, none of the French words I say will be pronounced correctly. Um, Good. I'm not alone. <laughs> but but then uh, when I sort of drilled down with what the circumstances of Van Gogh's death were, I was like, well, this guy didn't shoot himself. Um, and I got a book of his letters that he a, a wonderful book that juxtaposed what he was painting at the time, um, nice big colored plates of what he was painting with what he was writing and and. You know, he was he wrote sort of religiously to his brother Theo, um, who lived in Paris. And so even as as Van Gogh was traveling around um, France and and the Netherlands, he uh, he would always be writing to Theo and sort of keeping him up to date on what he was thinking, what he was doing. And, And his writings were not the writings of somebody who would kill himself, particularly um, particularly around the time that he was in Auvers and he died. And, and then the, the account of him going up to Dr. Gachet's um, porch and knocking on the door, you know, with this wound in his abdomen. And the first thing he said was, I, I did this. Or, or, um, and, it, you know, and I don't know what that would have been in French. <laughs> but it was just fairly obvious to me that that Van Gogh had not killed himself. Right. He, you know, nobody shoots themselves in the stomach, you know, and no, and he, and he was many things and may have had uh, some mental disorders, but he wasn't stupid and right. he wasn't suicidal. You know, you could you you can tell from his writings and from how people react to him. Um, and 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 in the middle of the day, he probably and he was while he was painting, he wasn't drunk. So you know, there's there's always that. You know, what lack of judgment. So anyway, I, that, I sort of started down the road of um, the murder of Vincent Van Gogh and the color blue, and then I started looking, uh, you know, going around the circumstances. And um, I had always sort of enjoyed when I was on book tour going to museums in my two hours off a day. Um, because it, and, you know, pardon me if I've told you this before, but when you're on book tour, you get up every day and you go to a new city and you go to bookstores, or if you're lucky enough, radio or television, and you talk about you and you talk about your book and you talk about you and you talk about your book. And then the evening you go to a bookstore and you talk about you and you talk about your book and you sign books and you talk about you and you talk about your book and then you go to bed and you get up and do it the next day. And and after about four days, I'm so sick of myself, I can't stand to go on. So when I was in cities on book tour, I would take a couple of hours and go to um, the art museums and look at painting. And after about 
20 minutes, it all, it, nothing was about me. Yeah. It was all, you just get into, there's this shift that I would feel in perception where everything I would look at for a couple hours would look like a, like an artistic composition. You know, I can remember eating uh, lunch in the, in the art Institute in Chicago. And after looking at, at their collection of paintings, more modern paintings, you know, from impressionists up and which is fantastic. And, and sitting in the cafeteria watching this older lady eating green beans and it just looked like art to me. Huh. And, I, and I, I just, it was so composed and such a, uh, a revelation and, and, but, but best of all, it was not about me. Right. And, um, and so that sort of was the impetus for putting this story together and then learning about where Van Gogh went to, you know, what studio he studied in in Paris and who he studied with. One of one of his uh, friends was Toulouse-Lautrec. And uh, and I sort of started building the book from there about, you know, the color blue and the murder of Vincent Van Gogh. And and then I just started learning about the details of the impressionists and all this art that I had been looking at for years because, you know, American museums have great impressionists, uh, collections because we had money when the French didn't like the impressionists. Yeah. And, uh, so, so, you know, Chicago has an extraordinary collection, Philadelphia, Boston, um, New York, of course, uh, all have an incredible collections of impressionist and post impressionist art. And, uh, and I had been looking at it for years and sort of my Midwestern work ethic said, well, you can't just waste that. You've got to make that into something. Hi, I'm Scott Simon of NPR News. You're listening to the Reduce Shakespeare Company podcast. Fool. Where can you RSC the RSC? You can see Reduced Shakespeare in your own home by owning your very own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. In the first half of 2020, we'll be performing The Complete Works of William Shakespeare, Abridged, Revised, Hamlet's Big Adventure, a prequel, and The Complete History of Comedy, Abridged, in Patchogue, New York. Thanks to listener Alan Cohen for the correct pronunciation. Clinton Township, Michigan, Arcata, California, Washington, Pennsylvania, Reston, Virginia, Whitewater, Wisconsin, Batavia, Illinois, Lynchburg, Virginia, and then we will kick off the summer for two weeks at the Hartford Stage Company in Connecticut with the complete history of comedy abridged. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office, venue, and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with Christopher Moore, who was able to reduce his novel Sacre Bleu to a single essential sentence. It's the origin story of the color ultramarine blue. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, and sort of how it has come to us, you know, over a period of you know, 30,000 years. And we get glimpses of, of the color blue, you know, while most of it takes place from about 1863 to 1891. The main action takes place in 1891 in Paris. Um, we flash back to, you know, Neolithic periods when, you know, cavemen first discover the, the color blue. And, uh, and it comes forward through, you know, we see it in uh, 
Caravaggio is mentioned and Michelangelo, there's this, a scene where he's discovering it and, and the, the muse of the color blue man, manifests herself or itself, their self. Um, I still have trouble with the pronoun thing. Um, it, it, the, in, in a different way to each of these artists, you know, sort of being what they need, the object of their desire. And, um, it, and I, I think the, the key to it, the thing that makes it different is at one point, the, the aspect of the muse that manifests herself to the main character of the book, who is Lucien Lessard, um, who is the son of a baker who lives on, um, on Montmartre in Paris, um, but aspires to be a painter, um, is she says, I am a muse. I am not here to make you comfortable. And, uh, and I think that's the, the truest thing of, of uh, you know, having worked in, in, in the arts more or less for 30 years. It's like, no, there's, there's nothing comfortable about it. There's nothing comforting about the arrival of the muse. It's like, I'm, I'm here and I'm going to mess you up. <laughs> you, you talk about how you made these connections um, and how you jump around. I love the nonlinear aspect of the storytelling. It feels almost, dare I say, impressionistic. Um, uh, was that conscious or that were you imitating something specifically or you just thought this is an easy way to tell the story? Um, well, it, it wasn't easy, but it was, there were two stories that I wanted to tell, two storylines that I wanted to tell, um, in the sort of main, uh, thrust of the book. And one was, you know, the plot is what drives the story. And so the plot was, it was essentially a murder mystery and the, and two friends of Vincent van Gogh trying to figure out what happened to him. You know, they didn't believe either that 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 Vincent had killed himself. And so it's, it's so that the main plot of it is taking place in 1891. But I also wanted to tell the story of Impressionism, which starts in 1863, basically, with the exhibition of Manet's uh, Luncheon in the Grass. Um, and I won't, I won't even pretend to know how to say that. But but you have this this. Uh, this painting, this sort of famous painting of, of a naked woman sitting on the bank of a, of a river um, and having very casually having lunch with a couple of guys. And it's so real and not mythical and everything. And, and, and at this salon exhibition where Manet shows this painting, um, Claude Monet and uh, Camille Pizarro and uh, James McNeil Whistler and uh, and uh, Renoir are all there, you know, most of them young uh, art students. And they're saying, oh, yeah, this is the new painting. This is what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I that's the reason that the, the story is told is that you have that line of me saying historically, this is why this is important, because a lot of uh, a lot of times when you come to look at impressionism and I, and I completely see why people dismiss it big. Well, that's just pretty little girls in hats or, uh, you know, that's just, that's just people at a boating party or something like that. And, and that's not what they were doing. You know, um, I mean, it's what they were doing, but it was, it, it was not normal for painters to paint reality or to, capture a moment of reality, which is kind of what they were doing. And, and this all sort of happens, um, 
contemporaneously with photography. You don't yeah. need you don't need to punt, to paint realistically anymore. You know, the artist is free. If you want realism, you can have someone take have someone take a picture. Yeah. Well, and that's a, a, an aspect of the book that I love as well is that for those of us like myself not, who I don't feel very versed in uh, visual art. Um, I mean, I know some of the history, but I don't know I understand how best to appreciate it and to look at it. Um, and, and so the book acts as a wonderful um, sort of, not only a primer on how to do that, but but a great imagined backstory for a lot of the origins of these paintings, which I find fascinating. Again, how the artist transforms his world into his art. Um, uh, and, and then late in the story, all these pennies begin to drop, and I don't want to cause too many spoilers, but there's, uh, um, uh, what it, uh, you, you talk about how the, the, the sake, the sacred blue is created. There's a, a Celtic legend is dropped. Um, uh, the Bosch is painting the garden of earthly delights that all these pennies begin to drop at the end and then just so perfect and I'm and I'm wondering whether you had those at the beginning oh I know it'll lead to all these things or did you make these discoveries as you went and go oh my gosh this is perfect well uh, some of them were just made up I've gotten a, a number of emails from people who said I can't find that figure in in Bosch's Garden of Earth, Earthly Delight <laughs> and that's because I made that up um <laughs> And, and um, I think I had I read an extraordinary amount of material for uh, for this book, both on the color blue and, and of course on the on the history of the artist that I'm writing about. But I looked I wanted to sort of have a ladder through history to bring, you know, the color blue from Neolithic times to to modern the modern era and it seemed best to sort of hit a greatest hits of artists that people might recognize. Um, and, you know, Bosch and Michelangelo, and I think I allude to Caravaggio. Um, and, and, there, and the thing that's really fun about doing a book like this is that when you discover a historical hole in history that uh, fits so beautifully with what you're trying to do, and, and so uh, the thing that comes to mind with that was when I was reading about Whistler, who sort of predates the – he paints contemporaneously with the, with the Impressionists, but he really um, comes out of a realist uh, school with, with Courbet a little bit before the Impressionists. And he um, actually exhibited at that, um, at that salon in 1863 where all these young students decide they're going to be – they don't know it's called Impressionism yet, but that's what they're going to do. And, but Whistler couldn't attend because he had been painting this great blue wave in, um, Biarritz, I guess. Um, and he, I guess we kept licking his brushes and the lead white had given him lead poisoning. So he was incredibly ill and he was, and he was, um, and he, he was convalescing and couldn't make it to the salon, although his painting um, of this woman, which is now in the Smithsonian, um, called Harmony and White, um, shows up at the salon. And this woman is this mistress that he stole from Corbet when they were staying at the beach. And so you have this sort of 
pervasive uh, presence of this woman through these two different, very obsessive artists. And I thought, well, that's perfect. Um, I, ha I actually have a real person that these both guys painted pictures of. Um, and, and there, and there's this whole backstory that I can sort of jump on. And, and, uh, and so there's scenes of Whistler, you know, at Chelsea in the fog in London and being approached by a character called the color man that, that, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, and, and it's, it's sort of, uh, that it's, it's really miraculous how history fits into your storyline sometimes, you know, it ruins it sometimes too, but, but, uh, but sometimes it just gives you these great things that you can do. So the short answer is I don't think I planned a lot of it, but things just, as I learned, they manifested themselves to be, this is a perfect thing to put into the story now. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. I am such a terrible interviewer, we barely even talked about the plot or how one of the protagonists is the famous artist Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, who turns out to be a classically wisecracking more hero. I urge you to find and read Sacre Bleu, a comedy to art, and all of Christopher Moore's hysterical and poignant novels, and then send us your musings on the muse via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and you can follow Christopher Moore on Twitter at The Author Guy. Thanks, as always, to tormented artiste Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to James Sherman. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Scott Simon from National Public Radio. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Tischner, 683 2049ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Chris, it's been so so great talking to you about this, your 10-year-old book. Don't you have a book coming out soon that we can talk about? Right. Well, as we speak, we're about, I think, four months from Shakespeare for Squirrels coming out. And uh, I'll love, I'd love to talk to you about that when it gets closer to coming out. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.